The Jerry Powell Podcast is brought to you by Archstone Foundation, preparing society and meeting the needs of an aging population. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to the Jerry Powell Podcast. This is Eric Guadera. This is Alex Smith. And Alex, I'm excited for today. Who do we have on? Today, we have two very special guests from Canada. We have Kieran Quinn, who is a uh, general internist, palliative care physician, health services researcher in Toronto. Welcome to the Jerry Pal podcast, Kieran. Thanks, Alex and Eric. Really, really excited to be here. It's not snowing in Canada yet, but we're not far away. <laughs> and we have Krista Harrison returning to the podcast, who is a palliative care researcher at UCSF and wrote an editorial on the topic that we're going to discuss today. Welcome back, Krista. Thank you. Glad to be here. I think last time you were on the podcast, you sang, Krista. Yeah, I was pretty excited that you didn't ask me to do that again today. <laughs> Please <laughs> don't ask me It's harder via Zoom. Up. We used to have a guest do music all the time, but that's when we were in person and stuff. It doesn't work so well via Zoom. So the topic for today is going to be kind of really talking about the theme of palliative care and those with chronic non-cancer illnesses. Uh, uh, this came out of uh, a recent publication in JAMA um, that Karen did with an editorial from Alex and Krista um, that's attached to that. We'll be talking all about those things. But before we do, we always go into a song request. Do you have a song request for Alex, Karen? Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite musicians of all time and personal heroes who sadly just died on September 11th, mm. uh, Freddie Toots Hibbert. So he's the lead mm -hmm. singer uh, of a Jamaican uh, reggae and ska band known as Toots and the Maytals, credited as one of the uh, founders and creators of the term reggae from his song, Do the Reggae. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the, the themes in this song, you know, ring true to some of the challenges that we're seeing with COVID across the world now. He talks about some inequities that he had, you know, in his life growing up in Jamaica in it. Um, and I think we're seeing some of those inequities being uh, uncovered in healthcare during the COVID pandemic, but also yeah. just a fantastic tune. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I'd go to bed, but sleep won't come. I get up in the night I couldn't fight my feelings Early in the morning It's just the same situation Oh, here come the landlord Just knocking upon my door to pay and I can't find a job let me tell you let me tell you time tough everything is out of sight it's so Excellent, Alex. Right on. Thanks, Alex. So, going on the topic of a hand, um, let's talk about palliative care for non-cancer patients. How did, how did you get interested in this topic, Karen? Honestly, Eric, it, the first 
profound experience I had that really got me on this path of thinking about patients, the care of patients with serious illness, and particularly non-cancer illness, was one of my first nights on call as a resident a couple years ago now. I did it as a resident on call, and he, he came in with the pneumonia, but he had quite advanced dementia where, you know, he, he, he could really, his suffering was palpable. He couldn't, couldn't recognize his family, couldn't get out of bed, um, needed, you know, full care. So as a due diligent, uh, you know, first-year resident, I did my thing and made sure I chose the right evidence-based antibiotics and gave him what I thought was just the right amount of fluids. But something just wasn't sitting right uh, all night. And the next morning when my staff attending came in and we were rounding on the patient's post-call, I said to him, you know, this doesn't seem like the kind of care that I would want. And there's just something about it that seems like it's not like the kind of care that most people would want, um, you know, projecting that onto them. Uh, there's got to be a different way that we can look after these types of people instead of this sort of conveyor belt in and out of hospital. Um, and, and he said to me, you know, there's a lot of challenges with the healthcare system, but if it's something you believe in and you want to try to change, then research is one way to do that. Um, and so I, uh, you know, I set myself on that path um, and I see it every day in the clinical practice uh, as a general internist and palliative care physician um, and read about it uh, in uh, from great work like those people uh, here today and others uh, in this world of you know palliative care research. And then the, kind of the big picture, why why even so? There's this issue of kind of lumping and splitting in palliative care. Um, you can call like anything palliative care, um, and you can look at all these different diseases and just see how they're going. And then kind of splitting potentially into different types of cancers kind of we, we've talked before on podcasts like is there a difference between palliative care for colon cancer versus non-colon cancers and, and in this case is why split between cancer and non-cancer diagnoses as you as you look through some of your research including a recent bmj article and this jama article that you just published um a month yeah. ago yeah, that's a great question, Eric. And I think it's not a clear-cut delineation. I think it's still somewhat controversial whether these these types of illness trajectories, as we think of them, whether it be cancer or various non-cancer type illnesses, are distinct or or can be sort of um, share common uh, palliative care needs. The one thing I think it's important to understand conceptually, though, is that their trajectory of dying does appear to be different. So, so patients with non-cancer illness can have these very dramatic decompensations of their disease. Um, and there's you know, several patients with heart failure, for example, who I see where they come in in really bad shape and we tell them this, this looks like it's going to be the end for you. Um, and now they kind of laugh in our face and say, you know, you've said that six times before, Dr. Quinn, and I'm going to do it the same this time that I did the other few times, right? But that kind of trajectory makes it difficult for us as healthcare providers and also the patients and caregivers to know when to shift their philosophy of care to more uh, of a comfort-focused approach than, than one that's focusing on survival. And I think, to me, that's the biggest delineation between patients who have cancer, where the signposts can be quite obvious, where, you know, if once you've um, stopped responding to your chemotherapy, the, the writing is on the wall that, that now it's time to focus on cherishing the time you have left. Whereas in these other diseases, it's not always so clear. Um, and I think that creates some of the challenges and differences in care that we see. Mm-hmm. And Krista, as a palliative care researcher, where do you put the need for a study like this, a systematic review and meta-analysis of non-cancer, serious illness, and palliative care in context? Well, on the one hand, as a researcher, I always like to see uh, us improving the evidence base, improving 
trying to figure out what have we studied rigorously through randomized control trials and where are there still gaps. Um, I my background's in health policy and ethics. And so that framework often leads me to think about who is actually receiving care now and who's benefiting and then who's left out. And so that's sort of what I've seen over the years um, that we, as the field started in cancer and we saw that that was a, a beneficial framework for people with cancer, that we have expanded to other different care domains, but each time we have to reaccustom both the, the colleagues that we have in those fields and the patients uh, in those, with those particular diseases, that this is a, a, an approach to care that would benefit them. And just talking about the end of life doesn't necessarily uh, make it come faster. And we should also mention that, oh boy, Dio, ca- oh, somebody help me. Cavalier Thank you. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> it took me a long time. Sorry, Dio, to get your name right. And he knows that from our many. Dio, apologies if you're listening. <laughs> but Krista got it. <laughs> yes. Kieran knows it. Dio uh, wrote the uh, systematic review of palliative care for cancer. And um, so this is, in some sense, a terrific follow on study. That uh, Dio study was also in JAMA. Yeah, and Alex, it was an intentional extension of Dio's study. He, he actually included um, trials of patients with non-cancer illness in his um, review as well. But at that time, there just wasn't the same evidence base that we have now. Um, and so we, we felt there was an opportunity to fill that gap, as Krista was talking about. So uh, tell us what you did in like, you know, some way that our largely clinical audience can understand. Because you did a tremendous amount of work here. You sifted through bazillion titles, etc. But um, what were you? What were you trying to like? What was the core thing that you were trying to uh, uh, uncover here in your systematic food meta-analysis? Right. Well, you know, I'll say that it um, came at the expense of time with my wife and my kids, as a, as a as an, a testament of just how much work this kind of uh, endeavor can be. But um, but it was fun in some respects. Uh, we looked at just over thirteen thousand titles that were published, and ultimately, you know, boiled that down to twenty eight trials um, that looked at palliative care as an intervention um, in patients with non cancer illness, um, and. Most of those patients ended up having heart failure or they were trials of sort of mixed diseases, but there were a couple in in patients with COPD um, and dementia as well, Uh, none in other important uh, non-cancer illnesses. Um, And then ultimately what we did is to try to synthesize that evidence, so to sort of take a high-level view at it and say, what is palliative care compared to usual care? Um, able to achieve for these patients. Um, And specifically, we looked at um, really patient-centered outcomes, uh, so things that are important to patients feeling better, having lower symptoms, shortness of breath, pain, things like that, Um, and and having a better quality of life. Um, And there's tools that that researchers use to measure that. We also looked at their healthcare use, um, so that would be the emergency department use and the health and the hospital use uh, and hospitalization, uh, because you know those are connected to poor quality of life as well. It's it's kind of a chicken and egg phenomenon, but but patients don't want to spend a lot of time if they don't have to in hospital, as, especially as they approach the end of life. Um, and then the last thing that we looked at as far as an outcome measure was uh, advanced care planning. So. 
There was a big push to try to have people have these discussions and serious illness conversations to plan for the future, to identify important decision makers for them, think about the types of care that they want. And we wanted to test all of that to see if palliative care could help improve those outcomes. I kind of like to think of it sometimes when, when looking at these studies, like what if palliative care was a drug, like uh, let's say a class of drugs. And when I'm looking at these articles, like, okay, are we looking at the class of drugs? Are we looking at a specific drug? What was the route? What was the dose? What was the frequency of palliative care? And I, th- I get really confused a lot because there's so much heterogeneity in what we're calling primary care. For example, is this within the class of palliative care? Is this specialty palliative care? Is it primary palliative care? Well, how often was it given? The frequency? What kind of dose? Did it include like all the domains of palliative care or just a couple domains of palliative care? And with like route, was it inpatient, outpatient? How, how did yeah. you handle that? for for this because you must have you must have hit that wall of heterogeneity and what we call in palliative care right oh absolutely eric and it's an you know it's a i think it's probably one of the most important points when you're trying to think about what to do with this information um and i thought krista and alex did a really nice job of trying to highlight that in the accompanying editorial because where we like to think of things and boil them down to a simple intervention like drug a versus a sugar pill Palliative care is not a a single entity, right? It's a complex intervention. um, And there's so many elements to it, both in the personnel that make up a team. But like you said, Eric, the timing, the dose, you know, how often people are being seen, where they're being seen, what they're being seen. And it's really difficult to, in a simplistic kind of way. So we did our best to try to be able to synthesize that and talk about that in the, in the study. Um, and there's some statistical wizardry around trying to measure that heterogeneity. But in the end, I think it's just fundamentally important to recognize that that exists. Um, and it's a first step into the realm of asking that question is, does palliative care work or not in patients with non-cancer illness? And the next step is, if it works, now how, what's the secret sauce that people like to talk about? How are we going to implement this, scale it, make it sustainable, figure out all the components. And that's what I'm excited to step into in the next, you know, several years of my life. So Kieran, I, I was wanted to ask you, how did you actually decide how big of a net to cast with regards to what you were terming palliative care interventions? Yeah, that's also a great question, Krista. And, you know, some of the, the feedback we've gotten already is that perhaps we were too broad reaching in, in our definition of what palliative care was and, and something that you, you know, I think appropriately brought up as well in the editorial. The, the tension right now, I think, in, in North America, at least around, around uh, design of palliative care programs is a lot of this discussion around specialty versus generalist palliative care, right? And the concept there to me is, are we trying to raise the ceiling or raise the floor? So do we want to raise the floor and get all of, you know, as many providers as possible in the healthcare system to practice palliative care or have some palliative care skills within their toolkit? Um, Or do we need to raise the ceiling and train as many palliative care specialists as we possibly can in the shortest amount of time to meet the needs of our aging medically complex population? And, And because we felt like we were sort of at the, well, we're not at the beginning, palliative care has been around for a long time, but answering this question, we're sort of in the early stages of it. We wanted to be broad um, and try to get some uh, signals as to whether there were differences in specialty versus generalist palliative care. 
But again, it opens the door for those future studies to help sort out those details. And, and you used the domains of palliative care. So like eight big domains of palliative care. And to, to, to be included in this study, is that right? You had to meet two of those eight domains. Yeah, that's right, two. Yep. Um, which was very similar, I believe, to Dio's study too, as far as... Uh, exactly the right? same, actually. We wanted to be consistent, uh, as I said, as an extension of Dio's study and, and model it. And I'm always, you know, the same thing with like Dio's study is how, how easy was it when you were looking at whether or not to include studies to incorporate those NCP guidelines uh, and domains? Um, for those listeners who haven't seen the, the domains, we'll have a link to it. You can actually, it's a free PDF that you can actually download. And I think that the fascinating thing is you have these eight broad domains, but then it goes into very specifics afterwards about what they mean with like, assessment and treatment options and follow-up. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's a really helpful um, structural framework to think about palliative care, right? Going back to your point about trying to think about it like a drug, it's a, such a complex intervention. And, and I think that those domains really help break it down for people so they can understand some of the components of, of what is palliative care or what's it trying to address. But it's challenging when you're looking at studies um, and trying to uh, assign what domains that each of those interventions are, are touching on, right? And a lot of it would come down to uncertainty at my level. So, you know, it's the importance of working as a team. We had a team of experts on, our, on the paper. And so we would review those with everybody. You know, we had two reviewers, myself and Mohammed, um, And then we had a group of other experts where we would say... We're just not sure if, if we think this is, you know, meets this domain or not. What do you guys think? And then we'd kind of have a consensus from experts. And I think that's probably the best way to approach it. The other challenge is that the older studies don't have to report their trials in the same way. Thankfully, there's been some great efforts into standardizing how we report trials now. But, you know, prior to the early 90s, like some of those are just, you know, interesting discussions, but require a little bit of uh, inference to try to figure that out. So this, this, your study, uh, you included uh, manuscripts that were in inpatient setting, like hospital setting, outpatient setting, home-based, clinic-based, um, nursing home-based. Um, am I miss- missing any settings there? Nope. I think that's all of them. And some of them that made it in, like one that we called out in our editorial and that you also called out in your discussion, like, is this, is this yeah. like the Van Spall article, which yeah. is also in JAMA? Yep. I'm just going to read aloud what the intervention was here so our listeners can decide for themselves whether they think this is palliative care. Hospitals were randomized to receive the intervention in which nurse-led self-care education, a structured hospital discharge summary, a family physician follow-up appointment less than one week after discharge, and for high-risk patients, structured nurse home visits and heart function clinics were provided to patients or usual care in which transitional care was left to the discretion of clinicians. As you can tell from that description, this was the effect of a patient-centered transitional care services on, house, on clinical outcomes in patients hospitalized for heart failure. So it, it very much made it into the transition domain. Is that palliative care? What, what do you, you know, think, Alex, Aaron? What do you think, Krista? It's amazing that you, you know, that is literally the exact same question that when we updated our search and Van Spell popped up, I said to the team, is this palliative care? Like, it kind of sounds like it, but I could also easily be convinced to say it's not really what, what intuitively we think of as palliative care. And I think that that's one of the biggest challenges that we have right now in the field. 
is because we're fighting to have palliative care expanded because we know it, it helps people, we're now getting lost in this forest of, well, what exactly is palliative care then when we're moving it upstream for people? Is it, is it based on a diagnosis? Is it based on a prognosis? Is it based on a set, set of number of needs? Um, and I think that that's one of the biggest things I've learned from this, this study, um, and you guys nicely highlighted as well in the editorial, that I think there's a real need to standardize that moving forward. And we really need to nail down some definitions, both from a research standpoint, but probably more importantly, to help our patients and providers understand what it is that we're asking for. Yeah, it always reminds me of the, the Carson article about uh, palliative, uh, it was a palliative care-led uh, meetings for chronically critically ill patients in the ICU, which was this large but very negative uh, study with some potential harms from the intervention. And everybody says, oh, that's not a palliative care intervention because it didn't address all these other domains versus like some articles that came out that were positive for palliative care that also didn't address many other domains and didn't include a full team, we latch on to say, oh yeah, look, palliative care works. Um, <laughs> Are you saying we're cherry picking? <laughs> we're really calling out the negative, art- negative studies as not palliative care? I don't know what That's what about. I worry about with studies like this is if you're not going to include that study, Alex, that you mentioned... Then you are actually, you're starting to cherry pick. You're saying, oh no, that one's definitely not palliative care. But like these are, but (laughs) when it comes to just looking at the NCP domains, like it fits within that structure. Yeah. And and Eric, I think that kind of points out to exactly why we felt compelled to include it, right? Is at the beginning, before you set out on this ridiculous journey, you, you know, you set your criteria to say, these are the things we're going to include. These are the studies. This is the criteria. And I couldn't make a compelling argument to say that they didn't fit those criteria. Um, and whether you like it or not, uh, and there'll be lots of disagreement about whether advanced bowel studies should have been included in this meta-analysis or not, we felt compelled that we needed to because there was no reason to exclude it. Otherwise, we would be left as cherry pickers. Can we talk about did palliative care work? Right, Sophie. We've <laughs> talked a lot. We haven't actually talked about what we found. Um, <laughs> I would say, um, on the whole, yes, uh, palliative care works. So, in general, we showed that it modestly reduced symptoms, um, and you can argue about whether that was clinically important or not. But there was, a, you know, a signal that it was reducing symptom burden in these patients. It lowered the rates that these patients went to the emergency department and it went went to the hospital, um, and it improved the number of. Uh, the patients who were engaging in advanced care planning, which was critically important. We were most surprised, though, by the fact that it did not appear to improve quality of life. Um, And I think that's probably what's going to generate some of the most important questions as to why is is that. And Krista, you had a nice setup in your editorial about this. How did you feel about the quality of life finding in particular? Well, I I think this is where we went back to pointing to the heterogeneity issue, that if you've got uh, a lot of different settings, a lot of different diseases, and uh, for some of those diseases, we have fewer tools to budge symptoms. You know, we've spent a lot of time and effort trying to figure out um, ways to mitigate pain, uh, but uh, it's harder to, to mitigate fatigue, for example the heterogeneity will uh, reduce the likelihood that you see quality of life 
um, seeing a, a major difference. And another thing that we saw um, in the Twitter conversation after the both the paper and the editorial came out is a number of people were pointing out that I would say they were calling for improvements in our quality care measurement tools, quality of life measurement tools, rather. Uh, and so... How so? What, what needs improvement in them? Well, the argument we were seeing is that they are not particularly sensitive or well-designed for the particular diseases and, and issues at stake. But Kieran, you were the one who had to figure out a way to synthesize this. So you say a little more about it. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think there's a few different um, hypotheses you can put out there as to why this may not be. And certainly the, the heterogeneity, right, that signal to noise ratio is probably one of the most compelling and and likely uh, reasons that this could have occurred. But Dio in his uh, study and in ours, we certainly thought a lot about the fact that these tools, especially in non-cancer populations, aren't necessarily designed to measure or aren't sensitive enough to measure changes in quality of life. So for example the Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire, which is commonly used in patients with heart failure to measure heart failure-related quality of life. And, you know, in Rogers's uh, PAL-HF study showed some improvements there. But it's derived in a population of patients that was in the MADIT-2 trial. And that's a device trial for primary and secondary prevention of sudden cardiac death due to arrhythmias. Um, that is that a po- palliative population, right? I, I don't know. I mean, again, it comes back to how you define things. But if you're looking at a tool that's measuring, that, that's created in a population of patients who are at different stages or maybe have different values and goals for their life, and then you try to take that hammer and put it on a screw, uh, you're using the wrong tool. Um, and so I, I, I don't know if that was a good analogy or not, but um, but you, we might, we, the point is we might be using the wrong tools and they're just not going to measure a difference because the tools don't measure a difference, not because that difference doesn't necessarily exist. Although we should point out, if you took that Van Spall article that we picked on earlier <laughs> out, then <laughs> didn't quality of life improve? Yeah, it did. Um, except uh, that in like the 30th page of the supplement where we look at publication bias, um, it turns out that all the prior trials, like there's a heavy publication bias towards positive trials um, mm. in the quality of life. So, and you know, uh, journals like to publish positive findings. Thankfully, I think that's changing a bit more now. But, but yeah. I, so I still don't know because yeah. uh, there Great was point. a heavy skew towards positive uh, publication bias. Mm-hmm. I was trying to cherry pick Alex. Always. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a true believer. I drank the Kool-Aid. It must yeah. work. It's what I do every day. <laughs> oh, yeah. my, I, you know, I, I think my take is uh, similar to Chris's. And I just, you know, as I was just coming off service uh, of the last two weeks, thinking about the patients I care for, and I asked my fellows, you know, wh- where do you think we do a better job? Do you think we do a better job um, caring for people with cancer, or the people with non-cancer? And they unequivocally like, yes, cancer. Like we just have been doing it for longer. We have a better sense of what it is. We have better, um, you know, can't treatment of cancer pain. We have decades of research on treatment of cancer pain, right? Versus, you know, dyspnea and heart failure, dyspnea, you know, shortest breath and COPD, uh, you know, fatigue. Those fields are in their infancy. 
um, we have a long way to go. And uh, many of the needs of people with, say, dementia are, you know, certainly they have symptoms, but many of their needs are things like, you know, assistance with daily care, things that are, uh, you know, often more within the geriatrics domain than they are within the palliative care domain. Yeah. And, and Alex, I think, you know, that makes me think about kind of two points there is, so when you're talking about patients with dementia, particularly advanced dementia, and trying to measure symptoms or quality of life, it's not the person with dementia necessarily that's reporting those symptoms or quality of life, right? You, you have like a surrogate caregiver or a nurse or a physician who's sort of ascribing those outcomes to them. And, and again, are those tools accurate? I mean, you know, th- there are some validated tools, sure, but like that's a different um, application than, than the patient themselves talking to them. Um, and, and your point about cancer, um, you know, like a lot of palliative care uh, programs are suited, seated within huge cancer centers and they're designed for cancer. And so are we trying to take an already in, amazingly complex intervention that works for patients with cancer and just trying to fit it on to patients with non-cancer? I don't know if we need a redesign and a rethink or we just need a modification. But, you know, I think that there's a lot of work to be done to sort that out. Yeah. And again, going towards that lumping and splitting article, do we need, like after doing this study and seeing the results, do we need randomized trials for every disease? Even for like this study, like there's a huge difference between, there's probably a bigger difference between dementia and let's say stroke than stroke and cancer or maybe you know, dementia and heart failure and then heart failure and cancer. Like, do we need specific randomized controlled trials for each one of these diagnoses to say, you know, does, you know, this type of palliative care intervention work or is it much more important to have that big, bigger picture approach? Well, I think it's, you know, the easiest answer is to always say it's both. Um, But uh, you know, I think you, you start at the top of the funnel and we work our way down. Um, this is not the first or last study of palliative care interventions in non-cancer illness. Um, there's a ton more that needs to come. And I think we need to start to focus on understanding those differences between diseases, between the care settings, between the different types of con- um, uh, intervention and the dose of that intervention, right? Each yeah. one of those in and of itself could be replicated 100 times over in different populations of patients. Um, So we're just at its infancy, I think. And Krista, at the end of your editorial, you say the review also underscores the need to fund, develop, and test interventions that provide relief of symptoms, interventions that improve quality of life, and interventions for diseases for which little or no randomized trial events currently exists. Where do you fall on to this lumper or splitter argument? I am sorry to say I'm also a both um, because on the one hand, you know, I... I have some degree of drinking the Kool-Aid and I think that hospice and palliative care can benefit the vast majority of people and we are not there yet. And I know that if you are talking about getting policy support, if you're talking about getting buy-in, if you're talking about even um, branding palliative care and getting people to say, oh, that's what you're giving me? I want that. That's a good thing. Sometimes you need to make sure that they feel like you're really helping them. Again, back to the the issue of uh, people with dementia and caregivers, palliative care says it cares for the whole family unit, but we get paid, the payment system, the policy system is around the 
patient provider relationship, um, which sort of leaves the caregiver uh, out of the loop a bit. And that's a really big problem with people with neurodegenerative illnesses because they need a lot of care and support too. And, and the cast of caregivers can change over time. And so that's a case where I think adapting, uh, having a two-way street between the dementia uh, experts and the palliative care experts working together to continue to develop and adapt as um, some of your previous podcasts have focused on palliative care interventions for that particular disease, great randomized controlled trials of those interventions, that will help create buy-in in the future um, such that people really believe when you have a, a large trial of a, a very heterogeneous um, patient population, target population, that, that they will really believe those outcomes worked for everyone. Hopefully. Now, Kieran, you're in, you're in Canada. Uh, of course, you have, uh, you know, universal health care. I'm assuming that in Canada, palliative care is, is already in its idealized form. I and mean, you don't have these same sort of issues about, you know, payment not aligning with needs and all that crazy No, stuff. no. I wish that was the case. Uh, we, we live in a country where uh, people self-identify with an insurance system uh, rather than some other way. Uh, like, like Canadians are so proud that we have universal healthcare system. It's, it's kind of a strange phenomenon, um, but it's an, it's susceptible and vulnerable to many of the same challenges seen in, in other jurisdictions like the United States, where it's not necessarily universal. Um, there are uh, pay in payment incentives, uh, financial incentives for physicians to, to use um, uh, and deliver palliative care. There's all sorts of financial incentives and financial barriers, you know, there, as Krista said, there's, there's no caregiver fee code for physicians to claim when they're providing care and, att and attention to the to the caregiver, um, and so that can be a barrier sometimes as well. So, yeah, I, I think that we have a different system, but many systems share the same problems, and a lot of that can be financially uh, linked as well. Unfortunately, I, I got one last question because uh, Krista, I think for the first time we mentioned hospice and palliative care. Um, where where did hospice fit into to all of this and how should it fit in so in canada we don't really have a robust hospice system like you have in the us we'll sort of colloquially refer to the um hospice economy uh, sort of pejoratively in canada uh, when we're talking about us hospice system because th there's such a different funding and economic model about how hospice is funded in the us um in canada there are very few hospice uh, uh, facilities, and most of them, at least half of their budget will come from, from charity, um, which partially explains why there are so few. Um, we do have specialized palliative care units uh, where they're sort of a, effectively a hospital that's set up for palliative care exclusively or a floor within a hospital for that purpose. Um, but again, those are few and far between. You know, we're talking about in Ontario, a few thousand beds dedicated to palliative care compared to the hundreds of thousands of beds for acute care and surgical care, right? So, Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing for your article, there were no randomized controlled trials of hospice versus non-hospice for non-cancer patients. No, that's, that's further down the funnel. <laughs> Krista, you've thought about this a lot. How do you, how do you think about that? I struggle with the pre-hospice uh, palliative care definition we've created in the United States where you've got the service of palliative care that is sometimes before a referral to hospice, but often 
Um, no referral to hospice happens at all. Uh, but palliative care is the umbrella term that hospice is part of. Uh, and in the United States, it was a policy and regulatory decision uh, that was uh, perhaps motivated a little bit by efforts to minimize costs to Medicare that made you need to have a six-month prognosis to be eligible for the Medicare hospice benefit and uh, be willing to make some trade-offs. And that's gotten increasingly complicated over time as the treatments that we have that have palliative benefit have expanded, which is great news, um, but is tricky when you're working off a per diem. On the other hand, the Medicare hospice benefit, which uh, aims to provide kind of all-inclusive 24-7 access to care and an interdisciplinary team, is better than a fee-for-service model for that just supports physician, nurse practitioner, advanced practice uh, provider uh, without the rest of the interdisciplinary team. So I know sometimes health systems struggle to provide the full interdisciplinary team for the pre-hospice palliative care services. Yeah, we yeah. certainly see some of those challenges related to fee-for-service in Canada as well, despite a universal healthcare system that's mm-hmm. supposed to you know, be all-encompassing. Mm-hmm. And one, one key sub-analysis that you included in, in your paper was uh, about home-based palliative care. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about why you did that specific analysis and what you found. Yeah, um, great, great, great point and question, Alex. Um, I think a lot of the evidence, at least the, the evidence um, showing benefit for palliative care, whether that was a randomized trial or um, observational studies, um, there's a, there seems to be the, the, the largest benefit coming from home-based palliative care. Um, and you can measure that benefit in different, many different ways. But if you ask patients where they want to receive their care and ultimately where they want to die if possible, most people will tell you they want to die at home. So I think that that kind of an approach is really trying to meet patients where they want and they need their care to occur. Um, so the reason that we included that in, in addition to looking at you know a, a, a specialized palliative care physician or an interdisciplinary team as part of these sub-analyses, whereas to try to take it one step further from does palliative care work, yes or no, to start to give some, raise some questions rather than give the answers of when, if it does work, what, what are some of the key components, you know, and certainly those are not all of them, but those are some of the ones that we thought were most important, or there was enough evidence to try to examine that uh, further in a, in a research framework. I wondered why you chose to look at just the people in home settings as opposed to look at each of the different settings? Or is that something that you're planning to do? Great, great question. The, the answer to that is more of a practical one uh, in that, you know, in, as you probably know, but for our listeners who maybe aren't so familiar with, with when you're looking at testing all of these different um, uh, theories, you need to have enough patients, or in this case, trials, to be able to detect differences between them, the so-called power of your study, right? And so um, the more we test, the more we're likely to find a false positive just by chance. Um, and the, the more layers to that testing that we add on, the more studies we need to be able to have, we need to have to be able to measure a, a meaningful difference between them, statistically speaking. Um, and so we just didn't have that power with only 28 trials. And so we just had to restrict to what we thought was the most important um, and the most had the most evidence for it to begin with. And when you looked in uh, the uh, 
that subgroup of studies that uh, included home-based palliative care as an intervention. What did you find? Yeah, so we, we didn't find um, any real benefit uh, with, when it came to home-based interventions uh, as far as the um, uh, outcomes that we were looking at. But, but I think, you know, I really want to caution people to sort of not interpret that as like, let's give up on home care, right? The, the way that the statistical analyses are done is just to say that is that is home care, um, does it have some signal that it benefits within this question that we're asking, that kind of narrow question of palliative care and non-cancer illness? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's even more reasons that we've already discussed today that are often more statistically related as to why you might not find a difference uh, or mm-hmm. a benefit. Right. Um, so uh, I, I would just say that I, there is a lot of evidence that lines up that says that home care really is beneficial. And I think, mm-hmm. again, if we keep it in the back of our minds of why we're doing this is to meet patients where they want and when they want it, um, home is still where the heart is, so to speak. Yeah. And how about when you looked at the subgroup of studies that included specialized palliative care? Yeah. Um, so in that sense, we actually looked at the presence of a physician as far as specialized palliative care. And Dio has done some prior work to to look at interventions and describing them as specialist versus non-specialist. But in this mm-hmm. case, one of the physician quest- trained in palliative care. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And we, and we wanted to sort of um, inform the design because, because physicians are an expensive resource and they take a long time to train. Um, and so we wanted to try to get the question answered or at least start to raise some future questions about do these programs, should these programs include physicians as part of this, incredible interdisciplinary team or can we can we leave them out and focus on other uh, providers who are equally good at delivering palliative care like social workers nurse practitioners you know etc but we did find um, overall that there was often a benefit in in um, all or almost all of the outcomes when the presence of that palliative care physician was there Um, so i think they 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 have a skill set they bring to the table in addition to the team that they all support each other uh, in helping patients. Mm-hmm. I think we, so as we're moving towards wrapping up now, uh, maybe each one of us can go, th- can say, you know, what is a key takeaway of the study for practicing clinicians, for health systems, for health policy, uh, or for future research? Uh, what, everything's on the table. What is it? One key take home. There are many key take homes and implications of this study. Kieran, we'll start with you and then we'll go to Krista. All right. Um, I think that the key takeaway for me is let's start on the. Uh, I'll focus on the clinic on the provider side. That palliative care, I think, should be viewed as as an important part of a multifaceted approach to delivering you know, what we would call high quality care to patients who are with serious illness. But I think that, like m- almost every intervention in medicine including palliative care, it has its limits, and we shouldn't be viewing this as a one-size-fits-all solution. So I don't want people, I don't think people should be thinking about like palliative care for all, um, and I think we need to think about it's palliative care for who, when, um, and where. That's great. And Krista? I think that was so nicely said, Karen. Uh, I would add, and as they develop those interventions, they need to be tested really well. We need really high quality science if we want our next meta-analysis to show the kinds of benefits that we instinctively think we should be seeing. 
And didn't you point out, Krista, that in order to get high quality science, you need funding for that science. And there are some institutes, right, at the NIH uh, that have, you know, contributed very little to palliative care research. And uh, there are, se- and not coincidentally, um, they line up with several of the domains where we have very few studies, right? End stage renal disease, right? Where the, NIDDK. Know, yeah, NIDDK. So little money. Let's go to Eric next. Eric, what's your take home? I think my take home is <clears throat> I really love this. And I think it, for me, it really captures the, like if somebody says palliative care does X, really taking a pause and saying, what do you mean by that? You're kind of using that family meeting skill set that we have to explore more. Do, do they mean it for a specific patient population? What kind of palliative care intervention are they looking at? What kind of special, does it specialty? Is it primary? To really drill down, I think we need to drill down as a field. What are we talking about when we, we say the word palliative care does something? Yeah. And uh, for me, uh, you know, one other implication is that you didn't specifically look at costs. But you did look at acute care service use, right? Hospitalizations, emergency department use, and these are really expensive components of care. And what we what you found is that a palliative care non-cancer um, chronic illness reduced emergency department visits, reduced hospitalizations. And the major growth of palliative care within the United States um, over the last two decades has been fueled in part, in large part, <laughs> in in the inpatient setting within hospitals because palliative care was shown to reduce hospital length of stay and most uh, payment is tied to how long the patient is in the hospital, right? You get a lump sum of money for however long they're in the hospital. In your study, you found that palliative care reduced emergency department use, reduced hospitalizations. And as we're moving to healthcare systems, healthcare policies that take care of populations of patients, that incentivize caring, taking care of populations, um, those are going to those are the two of the most expensive um, outlays for the health systems. And so I'm hopeful that health systems will say, "Hey, <laughs> this is really important here." Um, we need to invest in palliative care for non-cancer um, serious illness in the ways that we've previously, you know, developed palliative care in the inpatient setting, and as you said, here and you know, within cancer centers. And they're doing it because, all right, health systems may do this because it saves money, um, but I think at the same time, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add out, it's like costs is almost a dirty word in the palliative care world, right? It's like never talk about money, but, but healthcare is paid for by the people of, the, of society who live within that jurisdiction. And it's important. Um, and palliative care is not trying to save costs. But guess what? If it's a side effect of the drug, then le- like palliative care for all in that case, right? You know, it's okay to save costs and improve care. And that's kind of getting at that, that concept of value which is probably a discussion for another day. But I think it's important to say it's okay that it saves costs too. That being said, I'd like to add that I'd like to think of cost as a cost reduction as a process measure because at some point we're going to stop reducing costs because we will have gotten palliative care for everyone and it will still be a good model of care for people to get. Yeah, I completely agree, Krista. Well, Karen and Krista, I want to thank you for joining us on this podcast. Uh, but before you. we close up, how about Alex? You want to give us a little bit more? Mm-hmm.
Sister Lee cannot bear it And Brother Lincoln only stand it now They're crying night and day Nobody to help them make their way I've got 400 month rent to pay And I can't find a dollar Let me tell you, let me tell you Time to Everything is out of sight It's so Awesome, Alex. Love that song. Well done, Alex. Uh, Karen, a very big thank you for joining us again for this podcast. It was my honor to be on here. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. And all of our listeners, thank you for supporting the Jerry Powell podcast. If you have a second, please share this podcast with three of your closest colleagues. And a very big thank you to Artstone Foundation for your continued support. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.